Hey everyone, welcome to Series 7 of the Ville Podcast, and today's date is June 25th, 2020, and it is 3.30pm, and today we'll be dividing the podcast into two different parts. Um, so the first part will be the future of student housing, and we'll be joined by Professor Jeremy Bose and Dr. Sheila McCartney for a discussion focused on the design and architectural background underlying student housing in the City of Toronto. For part two, YVHA will host Professor Luis Sotomayor, Assistant Professor Marcelo Vieta, and Ryerson graduate Shamiza Gafour to overview the future of student housing in the city. We'll be looking at the role that marketization slash commodification of housing has played in producing precarious physical and material living conditions in communities like the village across Toronto. We'll touch on how new policies, infrastructure developments, and urban planning practices are going to impact the village and the city's rationale for moving forward with their decisions. Finally, we're going to explore the alternative models of housing and student housing and how they can be applied to the village. And before we get into all that, just a quick recap of Tuesday. Um, we spoke about the village and the new quote-unquote Jane Finch, and really we were talking about the, the community's relationship with York University um, and a little bit of the history of the Jane Finch community in the village and how that kind of relates to student housing availability and affordability and the processes underlining that, like privatization and neoliberalism. And before we get into today's episode, always a big thank you to and the individual that we are going to be hosting in part two today, Professor Luisa Sotomayor and her student LTO research partnership in the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. It's supported by a connections grant awarded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. And big shouts out to the Research at York program at York University. Um, if you're interested, please check out Experience York for more information, especially if you're a current student. And without further ado, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, we're going to be talking about the future of housing, the future of student housing in particular. Yeah, and we'll start with Sheila, if that's all right. Okay, great. My name is Sheila McCartney. I'm an associate professor at the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson University. And I'm also the, uh, the director of the Together Design Lab at Ryerson University. I'm an architect, an urban designer, uh, urbanist, and an urban planner. Amazing. Thank you so much. And Jeremy? Uh, I'm a professor at OKAD University. I'm an architect and an interior designer, and I've had 30 years of practice or more. Um, I teach in strategic foresight and innovation and the environmental design program. And I have a lab, uh, System City, which deals with urban ecology and urban planning. And I really focus on housing most of the time. So that's kind of where I am. Well, thank you so much um, for joining us again. And, and Sheila, we'll, we'll actually start with you. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the Together Design Lab and some of the work that you've done with your students? Sure, so the Together Design Lab at Ryerson University takes a collaborative approach to investigating and creating innovative solutions to housing issues within marginalized communities in Canada. And so we really rely on an immersive model of partnership, bringing together interdisciplinary students and collaborators together with communities to understand the meaning of housing and so that they can really shape their lived experience in their communities. You know, we recognize the cultural, gendered, and class implications of sort of dominant housing systems. And this model of partnerships looks to sort of reimagine housing environments more based on goals, aspirations of our partners, and their values. Like housing issues and solutions are not limited to the basics of just providing shelter. And I think that that's a really important thing to understand. A lot of people think of housing as just literally the shelter over people's heads. But when we think of shelter, we think of it as being understood as a complex analysis of personal and community well-being. And we really do our work through a model called the Listen, Learn, and Share model that we developed. And we co-create everything that we do. Yeah, 
And I think I think this this discussion is really topical. Um, that notion of like housing just being shelter uh, versus it being like a complex model of of living and well being. I think a lot of people who live in the village, um, especially people that we've spoken to on the podcast, re really kind of had to cut off a few things and and really did have to sort of look at housing as a shelter. And I'm I'm excited to see how maybe that improved their actual well being and their living conditions in the future. So. Yeah, that's right. yeah, so, so I mean, uh, today's subject is kind of like towards the future of student housing and what can we do to make it better? I'm going to jump over to Jeremy here. Uh, so looking towards the future of student housing, uh, what should be key components in designing on and off student residences and or multi-tenant housings within Toronto? Uh, well, so multi-tenant houses, you know, there isn't really a, a housing uh, guideline for for student housing. And so it's really interesting to think about the kind of things that students would need. The key understanding to me is around like uh, students needs of both private and social spaces and the kind of associated like functional needs of these spaces. So from an individual point of view, like the individual units, like most most of these places that are done aren't designed to have people share bathrooms, you know, like there's master bathrooms off of master bedrooms in single family houses, for instance, but in multi-tenant housing, you really need to split some of that up. So a lot of the, a lot of the layouts are different. They need to be transformed. They need to be scaled down. They need to be adaptive and transformative. So that you, like built-in furniture, for instance, to avoid students having to purchase furniture, more storage, like removable pieces so they can be cleaned and upgraded. You know, lots of, there's lots of things around the, the spatial reorganization. Students cook in a different way, you know, and they all have different food too. So there, there's a whole different uh, layout for how, you know, a group of students together might actually cook a meal or might cook a meal for themselves. So there's things like that. And also increased technology support, not just workspaces, but, you know, I think the average student has two to three devices minimum, right? So everybody's got to plug in, everybody's got to have Wi-Fi. It's a big deal. It's even a big deal in fam for families now. So there's lots of changes coming down the pipe now. And we notice that, especially now that we're all at home working. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you actually, um, you already pointed some out, um, but we were looking at the future of student housing and you mentioned some of the design flaws. Um, and Sheila, I was wondering if I could pass the question over to you. What are some of like these notable flaws or maybe oversights that are involved in the design process? And how might these actually um, inhibit students' ability to maybe access housing or, or live in, in that housing? So, I mean, a lot of the housing that we've studied is stuff that is provided by the university. And so it's so student university housing based. And so I think one of the key components that is actually missing from student housing is actually the involvement of students themselves. That's one of the kind of became one of the major tenants of the SDGO project. And I think that that's one of the things that separates Student Dwell Toronto from other projects is that we've centered students in the co-creation on the core team. We've centered them in actually developing the surveys and the tools, thinking what parts were of interest to them. We've centered students in actually the types of experience we're trying to hear from them. A lot of the data and research, and I sort of say this broadly across the literature, has ignored students. And through that, what I mean is that they may have another survey, it's called the Nessie survey that has looked at student pre preferences, but it hasn't recorded the stories or the insights or the deeper meaning behind what is going wrong in the lived experiences of students. Mm -hmm. So if we sort of take that as a model of the projects and sort of set that aside, that's probably the main tenant that I would say of what's wrong with student housing right now is that students aren't, have not been involved 
in the literature broadly, that's across North America and Europe, but then also specifically within projects, I don't think students have as much of a voice. And a lot of that has to do with how housing has changed. So student university housing, what you're seeing now of what's being developed is what I would say in the literature has become sort of like a privacy oriented model. A lot of it mimics the standard housing models due to the financing structures that are used to actually make these units much more apartment-like or house-like. They have very few shared amenities. They're designed almost to mimic different apartments. And at the same point in time, there's like these diverse financialization models. Universities are moving away from the risk of actually taking on student housing and the trying to focus on sort of what maybe they do better. But I'm not sure actually within this, if everyone's aware that, you know, parents are driving from our privacy, students want to mimic the rooms that they had at home in their parents' houses. There's a really diverse sets of students, but we also can look at the literature and say that, you know, many private developers are mimicking this model, but I'm not sure that students are aware of exactly the detrimental associated costs that this has on their social and academic costs that are associated with the isolating design that we're seeing within these privacy oriented models. And I think that's sort of the main thing that I think has sort of come across in the literature and within our studies is actually sort of really looking at how this new financialization, these new partnerships are creating these new types of units. And then students are thinking that they want those types of units, but at the same point in time, not understanding that they're actually significantly putting themselves at a disadvantage to develop uh, like as human beings, as adults through the institutions and knowing that the isolating models of not having as much socialization is actually directly neg negatively affecting their um, chances of staying in university and of their GPA. Like those are some staggering things when you begin to think about the importance of socialization within design. Yeah, and I think that raises a lot of uh, like interesting points on just like how like impactful these residents have on you know again like you were saying the social life and the GPA. I mean, actually like had a question regards right into that, which uh, you answered perfectly for us. Yeah. But uh, on, I, I did also want to add, um, you know, when you're talking about like this financialization of, of student housing and the, the the change in these models, right? And we spoke about it with Allison Evans in in podcast I think four. Um, but but we have like one of those private public models, which is the Quad, right? Where Essentially, York University invited an American investor um, to develop uh, and take on that risk of developing that that housing, and it was a, and it seemed to be a profit-seeking, like a very profitable model for the university, rather than necessarily looking for maybe like affordable models or, or looking at different models that do encourage the very type of socialization that you're talking about and that aren't necessarily luxury models. But I did just wanted to add that note. Yeah, no, and uh, yeah, and I guess like on that subject of student housing. Um, Jeremy, uh, in your experience during your tenure as a professor, uh, have there ever any, like been any initiatives that incorporate or like implement like certain components to design schemes in housing? And how might that be envisioned in this context, I guess, multi-tenant housing? I know you spoke a little bit about that uh, earlier, but just uh, in regards to, you know, potential projects that might have been brought up. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of new movement around in that territory to try and make uh, student housing more social. And uh, some of it, like we've looked at lots of international models, like, you know, the, the Wohn project in, when in, in Vienna 
where you know it's for adults and children it's not really for students but there's a lot of students who live there and they live within a community and and that's that idea that everybody lives as a community and that students aren't kind of outcasts in their own residence that notion of putting all students in one place i think is is a big question right now and there's there's lots of concepts even in japan where they have you know shared houses where people who aren't related live in kind of the shared house. Some of the models that we looked at that are also interesting are, are like the Care Center Humanitas in Deventer, Netherlands, where, and, and the one in Lyon, France, the ESDAs, where students live rent-free, but they help the elderly. So that's not everybody's cup of tea, but certainly it's, it's an interesting model where students contribute something and they share their knowledge and, with with seniors who actually need their help as well and it's a kind of you know collaborative adventure and i think the clo closer to home symbiosis project that by mcmaster is a really interesting one where they're matching students with seniors and who have spare rooms and they're encouraging them to engage and share their knowledge and that, that's a great thing and that's been done also in norway and denmark so there's some really interesting models like that right and, and I think actually in, in, I'm not too sure if it was in Toronto, but we did speak to last week to Yasser and to Ardavan uh, Aizadurad. Um, Yasser is a professor at York University and Professor Aizadurad is kind of all over the place. Um, but he did also speak about how there were like uh, uh, youth to senior like housing models um, and how they were popping up in Toronto. So, so that is very, very interesting. And, and, and it's kind of great to hear that, that there's different opportunities for students to actually like, again, socialize and be with the community. And I also think that that's, that aspect of socialization is one of the things that make the village absolutely awesome. But before we get into kind of talking about the village a little bit, um, Jeremy, again, uh, could you tell us a little bit uh, about what new urbanism is and the design and policies that kind of back it? Yeah. So we can think of the new urbanism like in a way to strong to foster a stronger village in a lot of ways like one of the ideas that keeps coming up with student housing and students is this stronger idea of shared things shared amenities shared social spaces gathering spaces shared work hubs you know shared exercise workout recreational gardens landscape you know all those things so the new urbanism at an urban level really tries to put a comprehensive package of that together. And there's, there's lots of examples of that. The financial models are the difficulty, but certainly combining it all together in a village where people would live. And, and I think one of the, the questions around that is, is it a student village or is it a community village in which students live? And, and I think because students don't want to be segregated either. They want to participate in, in the kind of social well-being of life every day. And so I think that that's what the contributions to the new urbanism is, is that nobody lives separate and nothing is, is separated by use, but in fact, it's combined as a community of dwellers who all share kind of different things, right? I think what, what one of the things that does make the village unique is that it, it is open to everybody, right? It is kind of in this like not necessarily really regulated market. It's not strictly student housing or, or, or it is multi-tenant housing in that broad category that allows, you know, students, laborers, different members of the community, faculty and staff to, to all live together kind of in this really, right. you know, again, social, but, but smaller space, right? And so these, in these single family homes that have kind of been subdivided. And Sheila, uh, earlier you were talking about, you know, the, the social experiencing and whatnot for the students. 
And we we're wondering a little bit more about what private corporations and like, how might public and private institutions uh, go about including students into the housing process in terms of space design and development? Well, for instance, I think one way to include students and center students is to really take on this aspects of socialization and privacy seriously. And that's one thing that I've spent some time developing through the project of Student Dwell Toronto is to actually develop a tool that allows it to actually be measured. Like there's nothing like taking quantitative data and being able to actually measure the levels of socialization and privacy within a residence. At the same point in time, that tool uh, of socialization spaces combined with architecture that is socializing, right? Architecture has a very large role to play in exactly how you can hint that students um, can use spaces to socialize well, right? It's not just about putting them in the space, it's actually allowing the space to foster friendships. And it's interesting that you can actually measure those things. You can actually quantify them now through a tool that we've developed. At the same point in time, we think of like different metrics and typologies of how data is calculated. So for instance, in the student housing development industry, they only calculate data and the types of units that are being um, calculated or tracked based upon facility, right? So I would arguably say that the socialization levels in an apartment that has five students in it is different than an apartment that has one student in it. And yet it's tracked just as an apartment. At the same point in time, you could have traditional rooms. It doesn't necessarily indicate if it's single or double, triple or quad. You're gonna have a significantly different living experience if you're sharing a room with four people than if you were by yourself. And so even how we're tracking the data, again, I'm a very applied researcher. So we said, saw this problem. We've developed a new set of typologies that perfectly sets together with this new, this, these old data sets so that people can begin to measure these new pieces. And yet looking back through time, the data sort of doesn't fall out, but we then to convince developers and people to be able to use it. So within that, when you're thinking about the financialization of what that means, you spoke about the quad and how that developer came up in the United States. Mm -hmm. So in terms of public-private partnerships, working with universities on student housing or creating what we call a new asset class, the US models are significantly more developed. What I mean by that is that the, the lenders and the, or the mortgagees are able to lend money at interest rates or at cap rates that assume that the housing market as a asset is stable. And so in Toronto, that is not something that has been done many, many times. And so you're finding developers, even if they want to do the right thing and have more social spaces, that the banks are actually pushing them towards making them more private so that they resemble this model that is more like a standard apartment, that in case it ever had to be sold, it could be sold just as normal apartment. And so when I say that there's a more mature market, it means that the mortgagees, which are the banks, are able to actually lend money at better rates that allow those assets to be profitable for the developer, maybe in the way that they want them to be social. And so the market in the U.S. is much more developed. There's many more uh, of these types of partnerships and assets already. So it's more mature. And what you're actually starting to see in the United States now is a saturation of the sort of upper rent, this high, high rents areas, this sort of echelon that's at the top. And so now they're actually creating more affordable models, but it took time. Sorry, and I think you can really, really see that in like super cities or, or like giant metropolitan centers like San Francisco or New York, but especially San Francisco right now is extremely um, visible with, with some of the uh, conditions that people who are being unhoused they're living in um, mm -hmm. and just the way like volatility has worked specifically in that market. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of interested to seeing 
um, the affordable models that they make. But to keep it kind of in, in Canada, and I hadn't considered those international dimensions before, I actually did want to ask, because there's this contrast between the experience of, of people who are living in apartment style and or luxury development housing, and again, these people who are living in like the social um, multi-tenant housing arrangements, let's say. And when we, we were speaking about student success and development, how might these two like spaces contrast? And if you could just help theorize to give us like one or two examples of, of kind of like how that looks, whether that's, you know, relating to the GPA or their work-life balance and or their lived experiences. I know that you touched on it before, but I just want to go into detail about how that contrasts. Right. So if you live in an apartment by yourself, you mm -hmm. get up every day and you go to the bathroom mm -hmm. in an apartment by yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you walk out and you get a coffee by yourself mm -hmm. and then you sit down and drink it by yourself. Mm -hmm. And then you, have no need to actually leave your apartment for the necessities of life, mm -hmm. right? So unless you pick up the phone and call someone or actively walk out the door and say, I'm going to go do something or meet somebody, mm -hmm. you're in your apartment by yourself. Mm -hmm. As opposed to other most socializing models where they have shared facilities where you walk out of your bedroom door, you could actually be sharing your bedroom with someone else, but you want to go to the bathroom while someone else might be standing there brushing their teeth at the same time. Or even if you have a bathroom that you can close the door on, when you come out and get your coffee or even waiting for it, the likelihood that you may meet up with somebody and we call them passive encounters. That's what they call them in the literature as well. Passive encounters where you may meet someone. It's kind of like when you might meet someone in an elevator, right? Like by happenstance, you're both in the same space. But from that, you begin to strike up relationships, friendships. You see that person a bunch of times. All of a sudden they have a coffee mug that has your favorite team on it or you see that they're reading something that you like and you're more likely to strike up a conversation with them, right? So they're more socializing spaces. And the best ways to have socializing or balanced privacy would be to have these socializing spaces going from individual spaces to two to three to five to six to 20 to an entire building. Whereas an apartment building, you could be by yourself and then you walk out into the building and you're immediately with a hundred other people, right? So that's kind of allows people to develop friendships on a more personal level. But what they're doing is they're actually building their network. And I think that's the thing that we talked about before is that when you're building your network, you're relating to people that are similar to yourself. And if you have difficulty, you're more likely to talk to somebody that's going through the same thing and having that same type of experience. And so you're developing as like a human being. And the other thing is, is you're actually negotiating with those people, right? Like if you have to share a kitchen, like, who cleans up the sink, who does the dishes, how you lay those things out. Those are small, like mundane things of life, but they actually allow you to develop into a person that has a better idea about negotiation. You become more mature in your human relationships with other people. And what they've proven through looking at this for many different years is that people that live in more socialized spaces develop more of humans around negotiation and therefore have the networks or positive networks that when they hit an issue in classes or in school, they can draw on that network to support them to stay in school and be successful. And that's kind of the bottom line, right? So if you live in an apartment by yourself, unless you're a super outgoing person that you, you know, that you run into people all the time and are constantly talking to people, but most people that are able to build deeper relationships, it's actually running into people sort of the same time, seeing them in the hall as they go to the lounge, when they're watching TV, you're watching TV, and then you have to negotiate which show you're gonna watch or who's gonna use what and what movie. Like those little pieces of negotiation actually are going to increase your likelihood, one, to stay in university and complete, we call it completion, and two, to get a higher GPA. 
And so many parents, we've documented in the literature, want to set their students up to be in these private areas. And I also want to sort of point out a nuance within that. Like there's a difference between a first year entering an undergraduate program and someone entering a graduate program, right? So someone that's in an undergraduate program has a lot of student development, a lot of living to do away from their family. And at the same point in time, a graduate student may have already had the experience doing that and they're more likely to want to be with the rest of the community that sort of Jeremy talked about. But undergrads, we even see it in the STTO data that's come out from the focus groups. Undergrads want to a community. They want to be together. They want to develop those relationships together. And it's actually setting them up to be very successful in university. I'm not saying that going out and being social with other people in the community is a bad thing, but just making sure that they are running into each other in a, in a quite close proximity way that allows them to develop personal relationships relatively easily um, is really positive. And I think, and I think just beyond like those small negotiations, it, it, it really is like a kind of about like that like-minded professional development, right? And, and I think that you can really, really see in just how you explained it to us, um, how that might translate to uh, whatever industry or sector or, or kind of area of study that, that you're focusing in, right? Um, yeah. And, and yeah, and this is like, this on that point you brought up about, you know, having a lot of people live in one area, I think it's really great for like, almost like a social support system as well, too, you know, because I know a lot of like domestic and especially international students are, you know, having this new experience, they're new yeah. to it, they, they've never really been in a situation where they've been on themselves. And I feel like, yeah, exactly what you said. I mean, even in my own experience, living with like 17 people in a house, you know, like it was a lot, right? Maybe a little bit excessive, but at the same time, it was great having everyone around because it was very social, you know, like if you're in your room, you're, you know, tied up with homework, at least you can like walk out the door and see somebody be like, hey, what's up? How's it going? You know what I mean? It kind of like is a way to let off steam in a certain way. And I think but also there needs to be a way to control that, right? So even when you said like, I could go into my room and get privacy when I need it, hey. right? Or that, you know, if you felt like being more social, you'd open the door and then someone could walk by and say hello. Yeah. right as opposed to in an apartment we're typically more shut and i think if we're like looking at all of those paradigms and kind of the contrast i think uh you know at that at that private scale you have the quad development just in relation to york university you have the quad development um where you have a, a lot more control around you know having that separation of privacy i think you have the york university apartments and i think where you have uh, almost this overcrowding and, and all of your space is constantly being used and you know, you're hearing people through the walls, regardless of what you want, is, is kind of life in the village, right? And I think that that's the contrast and separation there. But again, looking back at student housing, and Jeremy, actually, I don't think we asked you this question, but, but we wanted to know kind of what do you see as some of the flaws with the current design of student considered housing, assisted housing, and what are some of the kind of debates about, you know, having like-minded people together? And, you know, I don't want to overreach, but how might this affect mobility and movement patterns? Well, I just wanted to pick up on that because it's really about socialization and Sheila was really highlighting that. And the thing is, when you when you look at the village or you look at some of the, the housing, like the village was really purpose-built single family dwelling buildings. It's not really, a lot of it isn't really built for, for student housing. And, and the housing that's being built now by a lot of universities and U of T is one of the leaders in that you can see some of the residences, yes, in some ways they've combined six or seven bedrooms so that people are kind of encouraged to socialize and to get to, and to live together and to develop those responsibilities. The, the problem to me, in a way, is that the facilities are, are being taxed. 
So yeah, it's great. You have six or seven people living in a in a uh, six or seven bedroom unit. The, the units are small and the, and the rooms themselves are quite small, but you know, it's actually workable and people have that private space they can go to. However, they're sharing a bathroom, you know, and the bathroom isn't even split. So it's not like when somebody's having a shower, nobody can get in the bathroom. The kitchens are tiny. You get six or seven people in a kitchen, it's impossible. And there's almost no social space unless it's amenity space in some of them, it's in the bottom floors where that's where the, the maybe there's a cafeteria or maybe there's a games room or et cetera. So you have to leave the unit and leave your your team that you're living with, your roommates to go and socialize with a bigger group of people. So I don't think I don't think the, the student housing is really properly built to serve those kind of needs and there's a breaking point right like you said 17 people living in a house so that that to me is a breaking point because what you hope for is that there's no more than seven or eight people at any time in one place because that's kind of manageable right so so that to me is the issue is if if you go back to to Sheila's comment about really finding out what students need like what is the breaking point? Is it seven or eight people that could comfortably live together and learn social skills? You know, and what what does that entail as a as a unit design? For most of the single family dwellings that are being used, it, it's a complete retrofit. You really really need to redesign them and remake them so that they actually have more storage. Storage for how do you store seventeen bicycles, for instance? You know, like there's some really interesting you know, functional problems, never mind the kind of social problems, right? Yes, and, and go ahead, go ahead, yeah. I want to know, I want to note that actually just <laughs> talking specifically about bicycles, how you do that is you you rely on, you know, independent or, or you know, student-led or, or private groups, um, kind of like Regenesis, which absolutely amazing, uh, a student-led club at York University, and do, do a lot bringing in, a lot, bringing in like outside uh, individuals that are practicing fair trade practices, um, and they actually establish like, you know, they buy or they gather the money and the resources. They bought um, property at the quad or the leasing property at the quad and they're storing bikes there. So that's just like one way that that's actually <laughs> happening. And I think that's the most extreme, right? Because they're taking resources from the community that could go towards the community. Um, and, and then they're giving this money essentially to these private developers um, for space for the community where the developers probably could have, could, like, you know, at least conceived or thought about that uh, when they were making it, right? So I think that that's just, that was just a really, really, really interesting point that you made. Well, um, bikes are also, the mobility part of this is really interesting too, because for instance, especially in the downtown core, I know we're talking about York, but like how people bike around York is they bike because that's the easiest way to get around. Downtown though, that's also true because it gives it gives students mobility because then they don't have to live right next to the university. They can live in a, a more inexpensive part of town. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if it's a 30 minute commute, fine, but at least at least now they've gotten maybe three or $400 off their rent. So they're not paying as much or they've found, never mind the amount of money, they've actually found a place that's vacant that they can get, right? So because there's really a vacancy difficulty, right? Yeah, and just on that subject of, you know, kind of like uh, the, the redesigning of houses and, you know, this, that question of whether, you know, 17 people or even seven or eight is too much, right? Uh, we actually had a participant a couple weeks ago. Her name was Julie Connolly, and we essentially incentivized her research into essentially looking at the different uh, housing styles that there are in the village and looking at the, uh, the blueprints for the floor plans. 
and she was uh, talking, and the main purpose for it was surrounding, uh, like, establishing a house to code. And just in that regard, like, just in terms of your ar architectural background, like, a house of 17 people and getting it to code, uh, do you have any experience working with getting a house to code, or have you ever... No, I haven't done apartments in like 20 years. I mean, I started my career doing kind of apartment-like stuff, but I've, I've looked at a lot of student housing and last, uh, in the last uh, four or five years, I toured a lot in, in uh, Scandinavia and I was looking specifically at student housing because in Scandinavia, they, like both Norway and Denmark devote enormous amount of money to building student residences. And they actually do do a really interesting model where they use cooking as um, a socialization model. So people do have these tiny rooms that really are, are quite small bedrooms, but they're encouraged to go out on the public space to the floor and they, they only couple so many rooms. So it may only be 10 or 12 rooms that share a, a kitchen cooking area, which is out in the open, and it's almost like a la laboratory, but people get together, they socialize, they cook, they talk, you know, they have a glass of wine, whatever they do, it's, it's like real life, right? And the people who don't want to socialize or have work or whatever, they kind of go back to their rooms or they stay in their rooms or, and each room has a small little kitchenette, which is tiny, it's maybe only four feet or a meter, but it's enough that they could prepare something if they've got a deadline. So already they're beginning to understand what students need and what the, the numbers are that you can comfortably put people together without them feeling like they're now kind of in a prison or something, right? And I think just like on that note of, of talking about like these ideal spaces and, and like these different models and the different types of people who are going to be inhabiting these spaces, Sheila, we wanted to ask you, um, what, what do you kind of see as the ideal model for looking at the future of housing, uh, student housing developments? Oh, so I mean, I want to add on to one thing that Jeremy said is like this model about eight people, I think is also something that's sort of pulled out into urbanism. It's kind of this magic number that people have been working even when they're grouping like broad households together that, you know, eight seems to be the number that people can socialize and they can all take ownership for the space. But when mm -hmm. it gets larger than that, that's when the socialization problems hit because it's like, well, it's not my space. It's, it's this larger group space. Right. And so people don't take care of it. They put garbage in it. They leave stuff around it. They don't wash the dishes. And like that then caused sort of urban strife around it. So I think that it's interesting to see how these models from urbanism, you know, play in urban design really do play out in terms of even the housing models. And so working up through different scales, I think is what you're also seeing Jeremy talk about is like the housing model, you know, to multifamily housing, but then also looking at it for an entire residence. So for instance, there is no, I guess what I want to say is that there is no one ideal model. And I think that's the thing that's important to understand is that it is based on personality type, right? There are, there is a lot of research around if you are from a different socioeconomic group than maybe who are the people that are on your floor, if you're from a different racialized group than the people on your floor, mm -hmm. if you have different customs, then it may, then it is that you would perceive to have a different types of uh, models of privacy. And that's one of the things that actually sort of drove me within the research to find a way to measure the privacy so that we could actually, like I said to someone, I said, could you imagine filling out an app and it telling you the level of privacy that you should have ideally to maximize your GPA in student housing? I mean, I could actually give the, someone the information to do that now. Wow. And I think that that is kind of an incredible thing to think about it in terms of personality type 
and the cultural background you have and how you have interacted with people because sometimes people function better in specific groups working together. Sometimes people function. And one great thing about student housing is that it has always typically had, and I was about to say typically because things are changing, there was always kind of an egalitarian view. Like you went to a residence floor, everyone's room was the same, right? You walk in one door, it's the same. You walk in the next door, it's the same. That's not the case anymore. And so one thing that we've been doing recently in Toronto is actually kind of looking at the genome of buildings. So what is the different like unit structure that's in a floor? How are the units changing in these different pieces? And I just wanted to circle back and mention also in this question, when you said like, how can private and public institutions involve students better? You know, I think that it would be to actually have the data around socialization so that universities are tracking it and highlighting as we want to have this amount of social space. Because in these genome of buildings, we're starting to see these sort of secondary territories or these social spaces be pushed into units. And I think that's what Jeremy was talking about was actually taking some of those secondary spaces in an essential space like cooking and putting it in a very social space where people, again, have these sort of ideas of you know eight people around it that sort of take ownership for that space, but in a place where they can belong. And so students being able to control that, I think is a really important piece and how that then sort of plays out in the urban environment. So for instance, I will say for the ideal one, an ideal unit is a place where someone feels that they can have privacy and achieve privacy. And at the same point in time, they have mechanisms to be able to open up the unit in places. And that's kind of why I say that architecture also plays into this because if I open a door to my unit onto my, so, my smaller social space and it looks directly into a wall rather than into the unit itself, no one's gonna leave the door open. It ceases to be a social space. You know, at the same point in time, if I have my bedroom farther out and there isn't a visual connection from the bedroom to the living room to the door that people might walk in, again, I won't leave that door open because I can't sort of control through my eyesight the visual areas of those shared spaces. So to, to me, an ideal unit would have balanced privacy across it, mechanisms where students can actually get the privacy, i.e. by shutting the door or by opening it. But then I would be careful to not put automatic closers on those doors. I'd be careful to make sure that the code, um, that 17 space, it's probably a different occupancy level that would require an automatic closer on a door. Um, I'd be careful to key lock things differently. And I would want to make sure that those social spaces had a visual connection to one another. And so I would call that architectural depth. I would want shorter architectural depth within units so that uh, students weren't having to go through so many different spaces to sort of get to the private areas, but from their private areas, they could connect. I think, I think personal note, I remember when I grew up just outside of Toronto and my mother told me that um, if I was going to apply to the University of Toronto, to not even imagine the fact that I was going to be commuting from home, that she believed that that socialness and that living together. And I like, I'm like, it's kind of like the parents' dorm rooms of the 1960s was what I lived in and what um, was kind of the ideal at that time. And I think that like the developments from the post nineties forward have changed a lot in what's being developed, but it's important to note that there still is a large portion of the student population that is living in more traditional dorm rooms still across the city. And I think one that has balanced privacy or, and balanced socialization within it is the ideal, uh, especially when it's marked towards different people's personality type and um, kind of what they're bringing to the university experience with them and how they perform the best. 
Well, no, and I, I, I was going to note that um, when we're talking about balancing privacy and, you know, how actually students might perceive that, I, I wasn't looking for specific measures for privacy when I was trying to find my place, but I definitely do have a preference now. And, and it wasn't like, you know, automatic coded doors, but code doors, right? Not having to have a key because you can't be charged necessarily a key deposit. You can be charged a security deposit, but that's something different. Um, so those kinds of things really, really shape my experience as a student because those aren't you know, potential liabilities for me. But I, I just wanted to add that note. And then also looking at the, the, the future of student housing again, Jeremy, we actually kind of wanted to ask you, what do you see as the future of student housing uh, in the city of Toronto and maybe in the next five or 20 years? Well, so this is in student dwell, it's one of the things that we've been looking at and trying to get some sense of where things are going. And one of the things that um, Sheila mentioned too, is that, you know, students are different today than they than they were 20 years ago. I mean, and just this is anecdotal, but there is this difference that our biggest problem when we were doing any kind of student spaces 20 years ago was that people would put on music and there was this whole democratic kind of thing that had to happen about everybody agreeing on what music was being played because everybody had to listen to it. Now the opposite is true that pretty much students always have their own music and they're all plugged in. If anything, it's the difficulty of getting them to unplug, right, when they're in social spaces, right? So that changes, that changes the way you think about student housing and that there aren't necessarily these problems. Like, I think when you talk about the future of student housing, the money part is a big one in the city of Toronto, like how and who funds it and what the funding models are. And Sheila knows a lot more about that than I do. But when it comes down to the actual units, it does have to do with starting to take the risk to build something that is, is purposeful for students and not necessarily out in the open market. Right now, students are competing to get the units that are in the open market. So all those condos that are being rented for $1,850 or $2,000 a month, you know, a student who wants a quiet place for themselves, they're competing with a bigger market, you know? And I, I think that, so this flexibility is one thing that, that universities could provide if the city and universities got together and they started building, uh, you know, specific, uh, multi-tenant buildings that that maybe they weren't all dedicated to students they might include other people but at least if they included student units that were adaptable or transformative like you know Sheila's mentioned this a number of times that you when you want to engage socially you want to well in most student residences because of the fire codes and everything else it's limited to that one door that has the closer that you have to prop open to to get to your social space or to your shared space. And I think that's the problem is sometimes the codes get in the way where, you know, and Neil Weizak was a classic example of that where the hallways were gigantic and everybody socialized in the hallways, but you couldn't put furniture there even though the spaces were big because it was an egress, right? And so those are interesting things to navigate if you're specifically building for students. And the flexibility, why couldn't a whole wall slide away? I mean, and that, and that you could, when you were really open to social stuff, you could maybe open your you know, wall. And students are different. Like we talked about that a little earlier, it came up. Like some students might love that. Other students, that would not be their thing. But, you know, like that, that kind of differentiation, flexible op options. And I think the other thing that needs 
to happen in student housing in the future is a lot more flexibility. Like if we're all gonna have smaller spaces, then it means that things need to transform that sometimes if you have a big project and you're working with three other students, maybe the table transforms to a different kind of thing that's, that's something where you can all work together and do a project, or maybe you have to build something, or maybe you're an artist and you have to paint something, like in the table folds and goes away so that you actually have an open space that you could use an easel, any of those things. Though, though the ability to transform small spaces is important in all micro housing now, but it's specifically, I think a really big issue for students because students don't drag all their furniture to their residences, you know? And, and if you rent an apartment even, or you share a room with other students, you really wanna limit the stuff you have to drag from Barrie or Aurelia or wherever you're coming from to, to go to school because, you know, you gotta rent a van and, or get your parents to help you. And it's a big deal, right? Whereas if there's already something, maybe you have to have some, a mattress that you put on top of it, but if there's built-ins or there's things that transform, you can use your spaces. So I think that that's one of the things that that doing purpose-built uh, um, facilities for students would allow is it is the, it is different from just the general market housing, right? And the city needs to engage in that. So I'm hoping the future would do that and that we would actually be building that. And it would eliminate some of the struggle too, right? Yeah, and I think, and I think I, I just had a frown for that moment there. Um, the city really should engage with that. And, and I think that's one of the things that we're trying to, to, to see how the city can do exactly that uh, in the village because there, there's almost not like a, a, a divestment, but there's a divestment of, of interest and risk in, in what happens in the village. And, and even if you go, and I, again, I think we've mentioned this on almost every podcast now on the city of Toronto's website, you'll notice that rooming houses are not permitted in the village or in North York, at least, um, East York and in Scarborough, right? But when I called the city of Toronto to kind of follow up on that and, and get some information and just, you know, do whatever I could, um, they mentioned that in a 2013 harmonization plan, um, you know, rooming houses were, were made, what's it called, an exclusion or, or, or something like that, uh, so that rooming houses essentially would be allowed, um, or an exemption, sorry, that's exactly what I meant. And the lack of clarity, the lack of communication, the lack of awareness, you know, those, those specific lines of communication that would help people understand, you know, where they stand in terms of housing, that kind of eliminates whatever negative, like, you know, the scarcity or precarity involved um, with trying to, to get housing or access housing. Um, so that you can actually just enjoy those experiences and think about those small things when you're moving into these new and smaller and increasingly smaller spaces, right? You mentioned some things like, you know, getting a mattress to put on your bed or, or trying to design new spaces, you know, having tables that change. In these markets, I think, I think that the lack of, of, you know, just general inspection, interest and, and investment in the housing models and, and how much it's been marketized and commodified and, and the more and more that they're breaking these things down so that they can make more money on it, I think that it really, really almost eliminates that area of new development, uh, 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 at least in those homes, right? Or at least it, in those really, really tight, you know, 17 people spaces. Um, but don't forget the city, the city is in a hard place too, right? The, every year there's 100,000 people at plus that move into Toronto. So they're doing everything they can just to try and encourage developers and, and builders to build more units because they're they're needed right and students the unfortunate thing is that students seem to to be at the bottom of that list 
you know, they're always last. And part of it has to do with the transitory pattern as well. You know, like students don't la they don't live in a place for very long. You know, like some of them, some students, they change every, every year. They, they do the nine months, they go three months somewhere else and then they're back for another nine months. That's a difficult market to serve, right? I mean, even the, the fact that, you know, students are now keeping their units over the summer because they're worried they can't get another one. So they sublet it or they, they yeah, because once you get a unit, you don't want to have to move your stuff and, you know, that, and there's no support for that. You do it on your own, right? Like that's one of the things you have to do is figure out how you're going to pay for the rent for the three months you're not there or whatever. Right. No, exactly, exactly. And Sheila, you, you said that you were going to, or you, you kind of notion or waved over that you wanted to mention something. Well, I think it's to build off what Jeremy said. I mean, there's a very low, there's a historically low vacancy rate right now in Toronto. It's 0.3%. A healthy rate is 3%. We're well off that. Like we're 10x, we're 10x lower than what we need essentially. And so there's a lot of students and the pressurization of students, you know, it used to be that students could live in a lot of the smaller units that surrounded the universities. Well, now young professionals are living in those areas. Yeah. But I think that this is also one tenant that Student Dwell TO really took on. And it's something that I actually think that we're very proud of. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, students and the advocacy role around for students. So students in Toronto, uh, with the help of the University of Toronto, Ryerson, OCADU, and York University presidents, the pressure put on the city of Toronto to actually identify students as a separate accessibility group. That mm -hmm. means that they should be given and that they have been given rights within the planning to be thought of as a specific separate group. I mean, this is what the possibilities that that opens up is extraordinary. It means that students are now considered a, technically a public good or special group within the city of Toronto. And that advocacy can happen around actually making things like section 37 funds, fast tracking permitting, you know, those types of things right now, building student housing is treated exactly the same as if it was just any other private building. And we know in the city of Toronto, permits are taking between three and five years to get to make it through city design, site planning, the whole bit, that's a very expensive time. And that's going directly into the cost of those units later. And so anything that the city can do that, but maybe this is sort of my plug for students in general. If cities want to thrive, top universities need to be able to attract top talent of students that are going to be able to come to that school, thrive at that school, not be constantly stressed about housing. And at the same point in time, then they come in, they start companies, they live in the city, they settle in that city, that city has growth and thrives. And so for students to be considered, and I've heard them considered as transient. I mean, it was interesting watching the university presidents when we were talking at the conference that we had, the Student Dwell TO Summit that happened last May. You know, the university presidents literally got bristles on their back when people called their students transient because they're not transient. They shouldn't be treated as transient population just because they're there for four years and someone else kind of comes and takes their place. They have a very, very important role in city in the ecosystem, ecosystem of the city and making Toronto a successful place and a place for students to be able to live and be there. And so to prioritize the socialization of students at the unit, but also up through the entire city. Like when we think about urban spaces being de designed to accommodate students, that the rooming houses you spoke of are a model that again could be designed to accommodate more students. 
you know, the cities need to think about the universities as a true partner and player moving forward. And I think that they're beginning to, and that's something that we really wanted to highlight with this project. A lot of this work is driving towards that advocacy to try to get units being built. And that sort of that, that future that I hope it would be is that students housing would be considered full-fledged public good. It would allow for more ease of development for the universities to be able to develop them so that they can develop more models and that some of these models that Jeremy's talking about are actually prioritized with the city and you can actually use community development funds to build them. And I guess that's sort of like what I'm saying, like students to me are a public good. If you don't have the students in Toronto, this would be a significantly less prosperous place. Yeah, no, and, and you know, just on that note, uh, like Natty and I have spoken a lot about trying to, I mean, how ways university become more involved in terms of uh, accommodations for students who are going to university. You know, they, they pay thousands of dollars in tuition and, you know, a lot of them are just kind of starting their new student life and you know the least they could do is essentially like establish an accommodating space for all students whether on the university and increasing affordability and just overall accessibility to resources but like as we kind of like lean towards the end of the podcast um we uh just wanted to ask a question just in regards to the pandemic we're currently in so um I guess this question kind of goes for both of you in that regard, but what are some of the mistakes or flaws university and developers should avoid uh, when designing student housing in, in the near future, I could say now? And then Jeremy, I think we'll start with you for that question, if you don't mind. I have a little bit of a segue answer, I guess, because I think what you touched on and what Sheila was touching on was the importance of education in our society to a certain extent. And I think that that's one of the things that's happened and is happening is that people are thinking differently about education. And to go back to this notion of the transient label is that student learning is, is lifelong learning now. It's like you never finish, right? Like when, even when you finish your program, you're gonna be in a job where you're gonna continuously learn. All of us are continuously learning. So learning now is something you do for life. So it's not just an institutional process that happens for four years. And I think that's changed the way people think about it. And go to answer your question about COVID-19 and the pandemic, is that I think a lot of people have realized, you know, staying at home with their, their kids, you know, or, or their grandparents or whoever they're with, that everybody's doing the same thing. We're participating in life through a digital kind of connection. And a lot of that is about learning. You know, people are taking courses, people are continuing their courses, people are learning how to do things that they can't hire people for with YouTube videos because they don't know how, they need to repair something and they can't get anybody to do it. So suddenly the idea of continuous learning is, is front and center everywhere. And I think this climate is good because it means that you know, a student's life, that portion that they're actually at an institution may be small, but the idea that they partner with that institution for life, you never forget your experience. You take more courses later on when, when you're working and, you know, that idea that it continues. So I think universities are starting to understand that the students they have build a rapport with a particular institution as the next step to their continuous learning. And that means that they're not treated as transients, as we mentioned earlier, but they're treated as young citizens who are now gonna be the, the people who create the new urbanism of our cities 
for the future, including student housing, right? You know, we just have to figure out how to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And I think um, just touching on figuring out how to pay for it, I think, I think that, that, that that's the key thing there, right? And, and I think the separation between what Sheila was mentioning of students being considered a public good, and, and I think maybe what, you know, a lot of York University students specifically, I'm not going to speak for other university students in general, but um, especially the ones that we, we learned from in focus groups and in the consultations that we held, is that they are the ones who are paying for it, right? Like York University does see them as like the future of students and maybe it's considered that, yeah, they are the future of students and they are these citizens, um, but they're also considered as revenue sources, right? And that, in that exact light. Um, and I think that the role of uh, uh, the city there um, could very, very much help in, in kind of lightening that burden, or at least the provincial government or, or, or different levels in, in our complex system of federalism. Sheila, um, sorry, did, did you have uh, uh, anything to say about uh, the light of COVID, maybe some flaws that universities and developers should avoid? Well, I think it's quite interesting in COVID-19 that, you know, for the last three years, I've been studying this recession-proof asset class. Mm. Well, you know, come fall, that recession-proof asset class is going to have some significant problems because students are not going to be returning and living in those housing units. And so I think that, you know, before universities and the provincial government would somehow um, buffer that, I mean, it's hard to think you're going to plan for a once in a hundred years pandemic, but that, you know, if those students, if those buildings are actually transferred and go into the normal rental market because they're apartments, it's going to be a significant problem for universities in the future. And I think I just sort of want to highlight that, that if the spaces in the units are turned over and put into the normal housing market to make their financial uh, payments uh, work or be the necessary payments work or their obligations, you know, we could be taking a whole bunch of um, units out of the student housing group and putting them into the rest of the housing market, will there be uptaken? I mean, because there's a 0.3 percentage vacancy rate. I mean, there's a desperate need for places uh, that are available and you're experiencing that in the village right now. And so I think that we need to really think seriously about how we begin to buffer that within COVID-19. I'm not saying that we should take the money and like support all of the different private development, but also to realize what some of those developers are doing. There's a huge movement within housing since the 1980s of actually stripping out a lot of the supports that have gone into different levels of public and social housing and allow you know, this notion that, you know, the market will deliver, enable the market. Well, the trickle down theory has been proven that the, it is not trickling down. The units are not being created in the amounts that we need. And so I'm afraid that in COVID-19, we need to really carefully think about what that support is. Otherwise we could wind up actually losing housing units that are currently in the student housing market. That's a real danger of what's happening with COVID-19. But then also sort of like this idea that Jeremy talked about of like young citizens, like that socialization in the spaces of the university and in the urban spaces is very important for making these global citizens and these people that quite frankly, in this ideal notion of Canadian society where we look out for each other and interact with each other and support each other. You know, we need to actually further increase that socialization so that people can understand one another of different cultures when they come together and at the same point in time, go on to be citizens that are people that participate in the society fully. And I think that that's sort of the danger when we think about housing, if at all, as students sort of put into these apartments or thought of, of revenues. Because, you know, I study housing, you know, in the past, you know, post-war veterans that, you know, it was a very small percentage of society went to university. And it was also a percentage of society that was typically from a different economic background. 
And now, you know, your education is giving you theoretically the ability to go forward and to be able to pay those debts off. But that's not actually always true. And I think that when we think about different degrees and the tuition and the ability to pay money, you know, that is something that's quite complex. But if we think about this Canadian notion of ideal of a public good or education as the basis of our society, or I'm even talking about socializations of people in society, you know, what that means for society in general, that we need to be thinking of students as human beings that need to be supported in their housing and how that responsibility is held by society at large. Right. I think, I think, yeah, that was, that was an <laughs> excellent, excellent concluding excellent, note. Excellent. Um, I'm also I'm also going to note that that we actually might get a chance to to really speak about that specifically at York University, maybe maybe not more broadly in the city of Toronto. Um, also, maybe in the Jane Finch community, we'll be hosted or joined by uh, Shannon Holness and Assistant Professor, professor uh, Jennifer Foster from York University. And we're actually going to be talking about like urban ecosystems and urban ecology, um, and and how kind of this like let's say public to translating to private relationship um, is really affecting those those ecosystems, right? Um, but I wanted to say thank you so much, um, both you, uh, uh, Shima and, and Jeremy. This has been an awesome podcast and really, really- uh, Thank you very much for the opportunity. This has been delightful. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, thanks very much for the opportunity. It's been terrific to work with uh, the core team of student groups and also to really learn more about the students that I interact with and teach all the time. It's an excellent opportunity to share also with my colleagues. So thanks so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward to posting this probably in the next couple of days. So uh, stay posted on the Ville podcast on Spotify, Apple Music. Check us out. All right. Yeah, that was a pretty great podcast. Yeah, uh, that was good. Um, you know, we kind of we were given insight uh, by two, you know, good professors when it comes to student housing and architecture and kind of the problems uh, associated with it, but also the positive, uh, positive aspects of it. You know, I mean, the socialization helps be a key factor and, you know, having that student experience um, that everyone so desperately wants. And, you know, we also talked about the universities and how they should become more a part of the student accommodation and, you know, just in increasing those access to resources for them. Because, you know, as Sheila was saying, that 0.3% vacancy is, is absolutely crucial. And, you know, like in light of COVID, this might be changing, but as it is right now, we're still experiencing this crisis and it needs to be addressed, absolutely. Yeah, and I think and I think that that key thing about socialization and the way that that space really shapes people and that people shape spaces and 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 how that actually helps people with professional development, the student development and success, um, and how that actually works out to to be incorporated in the work life balance as a, as a work and labor studies student, seeing how that develops career prospects, that builds your network. Those things are really really key. But I also think it's important to note that that it can't all be for you know self interest and and for profit seeking imperatives. Um, but also for community building, because if it isn't, you get these exact flaws or, or, or structural mishaps uh, in, in the design process and in the architecture process it doesn't actually consider uh, students' needs, but considers um, shareholders' wants, right? And, and I think that that's something that was really, really highlighted today um, and, and the importance of actually having those social spaces as well. But before we take off, just to remind you, we are not, you know, legal entities and or legal professionals. We're just people trying to help other people. If you want to learn more about your rights as a tenant, please check out yvha.ca or the Ontario government website at ontario.ca slash page slash renting Ontario your rights. The Landlord and Tenant Board Tribunal at sjto.gov.on.ca or the Federation of Metropolitan Tenants Association of Toronto at torontotenants.org. And you can also learn about more uh, learn more about student housing and multi-tenant housing at York University website, uh, studenthousing.info.york.ca. You can also visit uh, City of Toronto's website at www.toronto.ca. 
uh, community people and housing shelter. Uh, and you can also learn more about our housing uh, housing help and support system in the village uh, at our website, yvhe.ca, and you can email us at yourvillagehousing at gmail.com. But why not go one step further and enter for a chance to win one of 10 custom YVHA t-shirts. And again, you just have to email us at yorkvillagehousing.ca. Send us your story. Um, and you can do that on Facebook too, at Housing York, or on Insta at YorkVHA, or on Twitter at Housing York. And if you live in the village, you should go that step again further and join our private Facebook group on York Village Housing. Uh, sorry, on Facebook, it's York Village Housing Association. Uh, and register your home on our website, yvha.ca slash workplace. Uh, thank you so much. My name is Natty. I'm Andrew. And that's the bill.